0: And we're back. Another episode, Space and Sixty. Another episode of Space and Sixty with Andrew Pilip, Chuckwood, Chuckwood.
1: And Clint Groman. Min Min Min. (laughs) you'll get one
0: stick with it yeah you will get it oh yeah we're back for another episode there's just been you know a crazy world in the space industry lately lots of stuff happening
1: so much stuff that i can't think of a single
0: thing (laughs) no there's lots going on like when you're hearing this one we've just had dart crash into an asteroid not too long ago like that was a cool thing yes
1: and trajectory changed. Everything kind of went off without a hitch.
0: Yep. And that was just amazing. And I think I heard that it was flying at four thousand miles per second. Like to be able to do the math to hit an asteroid moving that speed to get there, it's crazy. If
1: it's not metric, I don't understand.
0: Yeah, you Canadians and your weird, weird measurements.
1: A weird, weird, evenly, you know, divisible by 10 measurements.
0: It's actually quite logical. Mm-hmm, indeed. But yeah, lot's going on in the space industry, and today we've got a really cool guest, as usual. All of our guests are amazing and cool, and this one is an author.
1: And podcaster,
0: and... Visual effects supervisor on, like, space shows and A-lister space shows and two-in-the-morning space shows, and can't wait to introduce him to the group.
1: Oh, just come on he worked with star trek like let's work with yeah yeah Yeah. he's worked with star trek
0: but he's also the editor of a magazine the author of a lot of books and so for today we'd like to welcome on to the podcast rod Rod pile rod pile rod welcome to space and 60 We weren't sure if you were coming or not we thought maybe we made you mad when we had to reschedule last time
2: Nah, stuff
0: happens but yeah we are we're thrilled to have you on the the show Andrew and I have been doing lots of background uh learning about all the work that you've done and like you've done a lot of work that we're really big fans of
2: (laughs) well thank you (laughs) I appreciate it I'm not a fan of your podcast because you were kind enough to ask me to come play oh there we go
0: look at that yeah, I guess your bar is pretty low.
2: We <laughs> like that. Well, I've done two podcasts. The first one lasted 80 episodes. Uh, the current one's up at about 32. And this time, fortunately, I have a radio company who's handling the producing and the editing and all that stuff that's no fun for any of us. But it can be a thankless endeavor sometimes. So I, I appreciate that you guys are doing this because it's never easy.
0: Podcasting is hard. And the audience needs to know that it's really hard.
2: Yeah. I was listening to one of the guys that I do a regular radio slot with yesterday. I was driving down to San Diego and he was talking about how it's, you know, it's podcast is following the same trajectory as virtually every other media venue that we've seen over the last 50 years, which is it's conglomerating big money's coming in. It will soon probably become somewhat monopolistic and, as usual, the smaller creators will kind of be pushed into a corner where they can make even less, <laughs> if that's well, possible.
0: I think we're at zero, so I'm not sure it can get any further less than where yeah, we're any, at. any, any further
1: less than where we're at,
2: yeah.
0: That sounds like book authoring. Yeah.
2: It's <laughs> <Just> kind <laughs> of gotten the same. I'll whine about that later, but yeah, my goodness.
0: Oh, well, I mean, it is amazing to have you on the show. You've got me, you've got Andrew. Hopefully, we can have a good time and and learn something about how you've influenced the space industry. Like, already, we've seen, I think you've written 15 books. Is that right?
2: In all 20, if you include the audio books. And I was just thinking, as I was driving down here last night, I was ruminating as people and creatives, quote unquote, so often do, thinking gosh, I haven't released a book in three years. I'm really becoming kind of a sloth. You know, I always wanted to do at least 25 and a uh, voice talk in the side of my head. And I thought, okay, just stop whining about it and do it. So I'm going to try and start one this year.
0: Well, that'd be great. So Andrew and I, we're, we're looking forward to, I think your last book was Space 2.0.
2: Is that right? Well, it was a weird year that year because I had been writing a bunch kind of either in leapfrog or in tandem. So I released four. I think the last one was actually Heroes of the Space Age, but Space 2.0 was was just before that. And then three books I'd written before got re-released because, you know, 2019 was the Apollo 11 50th anniversary. So if you'd ever written anything that had a word Apollo 11 in it, boom, it was back on the shelves. Unfortunately, I had worked that deal out with a rather unscrupulous packager when I was writing between 2005 and 2010. So three books got republished with me not receiving a dime of royalties. Welcome to the business. And actually, in one case, the publisher of the U.K. called me and said, uh, hey, you know, we sort of wonder if we'd get an update to those last few chapters because so much has changed. And I said, well and so i kind of explained the situation they said "Oh, we can't do anything about that because your deal isn't with us it's him but can you do the update and so like a fool i i did it because you know your name's on it you think well that's the right thing to do but i was growling through the whole thing but it's the right thing to do
1: and you'd be an honorary canadian as a result <laughs> because
2: I was decent, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we've got an American Canadian thing going on here. Oh so. no,
2: I completely agree. I just got back from <laughs> almost a month up on Devon Island, well north of you guys, up off the Canadian frontier. There's a a little Mars research station up there that a friend of mine named Pascal Lee runs. And I was reminded, especially the further north you go, I mean, all of Canada is pretty cool, but I'd never been north of Vancouver. The further north you go, life gets more basic and essential, especially when you get up on the frontier. But man, the difference between, just say TSA, the difference between the airport people in the US and Canada was kind of startling. <laughs> it went from sort of... Bored irritation to, hey, can I help you with your luggage? And, oh, that's an awful lot. That's a little overweight. Ah, we won't worry about it and that kind of thing. That never happens here. Mm-hmm. So I like Canada. Welcome to
1: Canada. Now, I, I got to look up how far north Devon is. But you said it was a Mars research station or
2: Mars-esque? So it's 15 degrees south of the Pole, roughly. And I know that because we watched while we were up there, we watched an episode of Top Gear called the Polar Special, where they drove to the North Pole with a Toyota Tundra and actually stopped about three degrees shy of where we were because they were at the magnetic pole. So we all snickered at that. There's two little bases up there. One's by a group called the Mars Society, and that's a Mars analog where they... Travel up there. They put on spacesuits. They go through a the simulated decompression cycle, go outside, you know, walk around, pick up rocks, that look like space people, which is fine. You know, that's what they do. I don't know if they're generating any specific research anymore, but, you know, it's still worthwhile activity. Our base was the one on the other side, just off the edge of uh, the Houghton Impact crater. And it was set up by Pascal in 1996. Seven or eight with NASA and Ames Research Center, and it's more about testing mobility systems and exploration systems. He's tested, I think, three generations of uh, EVA suits up there from Hamilton Standard, the other spacesuit company that keeps escaping me that is currently has a contract with Artemis and uh, for the Artemis mission. This year, he was testing drone techniques for like you know, how ingenuity pops up to give the Perseverance rover a look at what's ahead so you don't drive into a sand dune or over a cliff or something. So this is a similar technique using both drones and balloons. The idea is that a drone can do reconnoitering. And actually, if you equip it right, if an astronaut sees uh, an interesting-looking rock target on Mars in the future, say, you know, a quarter mile away, you could fly a drone over, grab a sample, bring it back and run it through the lab without having to risk astronaut or rover, So that was just some of the the stuff they are doing up there. And then there was a group from MIT, three guys who came up, were doing a radio astronomy experiment that was actually really cool. They were looking for the radio signal, the RF signal, of the very first reionization of the universe. I think it was 100 million years after the Big Bang or something, maybe less than that. That's where the first stars started to form. There's a very weak signal coming from that. But you've got to, you know, tease it out from the the cosmic microwave background and all the other radio hash that's coming from 13 or so billion years ago. So they needed to be in a radio silent area. So while we were doing all our our Mars analog stuff, they were doing that, which involved these guys were like Spartans and involved laying out a backplane grid that was six miles of wire run back and forth. But They had to be at exact widths apart. So in one area, they'd be half inch. another area, they'd be three inches because, of course, you're trying to intercept this radio frequency. And then there's a 10 on top of that. And even though it's radio silent, they were getting this noise spike in a certain frequency range. I mean, it's just, you know, rain, sleet, snow. They're going out there on the ATVs and riding a mile and a half to... Change batteries every uh, three times a day and so forth. But it was amazing. And if you ever get a chance to go up there in that region, it's so Mars like, you know, with the exception of the fact, of course, that you don't have to wear a pressure suit and you're not breathing perchlorates and being bathed and killing radiation and all that. Other than that, it's so Mars like. It's amazing, even down to the sharpness of the dust, which pervades everything. So we were up there for about 22 days. It was really great.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
0: That sounds like a great place for our next company offsite, Andrew.
1: Oh, yeah, there we go. We can do, like, what's that TV show where the guys go out into the
2: wilderness? Oh, one of those uh, watch me come out here and suffer and die things? Exactly. Yeah, one of those ones. I forget which one. Bear Grylls Is that his name? I think, I don't know. It sounds familiar. Do you know when they got caught staying in hotels? Or was it the other guy? <laughs>
1: that would definitely <laughs> be guy. us. We, we would definitely go bust me and Andrew.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, in about ten days in, I kind of wish we were too, because it—you know—it was exciting and, and really fascinating. But you know, you're using one of those little Jimmy toilets with the seat and the plastic bags, and your running water was a—they have a system that wasn't working because they hadn't been up there for four years, so because of COVID, so the weather had taken its toll and so forth. So we we're basically just kind of taking little. Thermoses of water back and forth. Anyway, sorry, I could go on about that all day, but it was it was very cool. It's up there. Yeah, it's cool.
0: I'm interested in hearing too, like not just about your time spent there, but I also saw that you had a book. Like I think it was about a battle star. Like what was the title of that
2: one? That one was really cool. Blueprint for a battle star. That was supposed to actually be called uh, How to Build a Death Star, and that was one of those cool th- situations where so i started writing books in 2004 2005 and i you know by the time you've done five or six sometimes they just come to you which is great so you're not pitching you're not doing book proposals so i got contacted by the folks at carlton but it was under a, one of their different labels i think it was uh, andre Deutsch imprints rather and they said hey you know we want to do this this book on the science of science fiction can you do it and i said sure And I said, uh, what are we going to call it? They said, how to build a Death Star. And I thought, well, that's cool. So the idea was, you know, work with an illustrator and lay out, I don't know, I think there's 50 or so, maybe 30 scenarios of, okay, you know, if we can ever build a flying car, when the heck will it happen and what will it be like? Or can you build a, a Death Star and that kind of thing? And we were just, you know, this close to releasing the thing and Disney bought Star Wars
0: and then you got the letter
2: no actually we didn't get a letter we just got the attorneys a couple floors up going uh, it's yeah them. you know this was always copyrighted but now it's like triple copyrighted so you better come up with something else so i guess they <laughs> figured they could mooch galactica instead of uh, star wars yep. which worked out okay so yeah that was a really fun book to do i'd love to do it again what's your favorite book that you've written bet you never heard that one before Well, and it's always the hard question to answer because it kind of shifts over time. And, you know, then I'll go back and maybe twice a year I'll check Amazon to see how the reviews are doing. And it's like, well, gee, that one got more reviews than this one. So maybe I like that more today. But I think overall, not a favorite because I enjoyed doing them all. But the the one that was the most fun, I think, was uh, Amazing Stories of the Space Age. Because it was all about, okay, let's dig up the stuff that we thought about doing but didn't or that we were gonna do in a different way, and then it transmuted. So for instance, you know, the original Voyager was a much bigger project that would have required a Saturn V to launch and it was Mars bound. And I mean it was immense. It was like the the mass of Apollo hardware. It was this huge, crazy typical example of early NASA and sort of in a way what become later NASA, which is You know, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and different science teams would come in. Well, let's add this. No, we ought to have that. And No, we can have a walking talking robot that rolls out. I'm exaggerating, but it was kind of along those lines. Or the idea that it would make sense for the Russians, the Americans to both detonate nuclear warheads on the moon. Because that would show everybody on Earth who had the bigger bomb. Mm. So on and so on. That sounds
1: brilliant. Just brilliant.
2: Yeah. Oh, it was a brilliant time, you know, and I think they were going to, we were going to do one on the Terminator and they were going to do one elsewhere. And the idea being that our rockets are smaller and our bombs were a smaller yield. So we'd need to have the dust backlit to be visible or something. It's just nuts. And of course, if you've ever looked at project horizon, which was the nineteen late 1950s U S army plan for a moon base because, of course, you want to get there before the Reds do. They were going to build a four-habitat moon base using, I think, the Saturn I as the launcher. And so Von Braun was in on the design of this. And, you know, you tell Werner Von Braun, the father of the Saturn V, hey, we're going to get the military to step in and pay for a trip to the moon. He's like, yeah. And off he goes with his, his drafting pencil and the slide rule. So it was going to be, like I said, I think four habitats. The idea was the first crew would go up. They'd survey that area of the moon that they, whatever they chose, which they'd choose more of it, land. And there'd be a bunch of stuff that would be, I guess, either pre or post position for them. The long and short of it is within a year, there would have been three crews up there with cranes and atomic power and so forth, who were going to dig trenches In the lunar surface which we knew nothing about at that point at all we were just looking at through telescopes bury these habitats connect these habitats set up the nuclear power generators and they were eventually going to have a crew of i think uh, between 20 and 40 soldiers up there of course if you've got soldiers on the moon you have two other things you have to think about which is having nuclear missiles on the moon to send back to earth because when you're in the middle of cold War. Why just have ICBMs when you can launch them from the moon back to the earth, which made no sense whatsoever because it's a three-day trip. But more impressively, they wanted to have armed military up there because you never know when those Russians are going to come bounding over the next crater. So they had small-yield nuclear bazookas.
0: Nuclear bazookas. So long as they
1: had duct tape, it would have worked out just fine.
2: Nuclear bazookas, uh, lunar claymore mines which work really well, of course, because there's nothing slowing down all those little ball bearings that are blasting out of your mind. And pellet guns, because they reasoned, you know, on the moon, you don't need to kill the other guy. You just need to puncture his suit with a BB, and that will require a couple other guys to go drag him off. Although on the moon, you know, you're a lot stronger than you are on Earth because moon soldiers don't weigh as much. But, yeah, it was it was great fun. So I was just reading through all that stuff and, and grooving on it. It was great.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I've actually been waiting this entire podcast to ask you about Deep Space Nine. I can't wait. And I I just like it doesn't quite fit the conversation, but I've just been holding it back and I couldn't wait to ask
2: you. Oh, why not? So how and why and what was it like kind of thing? How, why, everything, all the details. So I'd been working at TV commercials in the '80s because I had no soul. I got really tired of it. So after about five years, seven years of that, I said, "Okay, I've, I've got to go pay for my my sins." So I started making educational films, that, like stuff that you saw in a classroom when you were little kids, you know. And it was a pretty dorky way to make a living, but I was working with Disney, and so you know, if you're going to be stuck making educational films, Disney was kind of the premier label at that time. But one of the guys I had hired in the camera department where I was still at the commercial production house had gone on to work on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was buddies with Rob Legato, who was the first visual effects supervisor on that series and you know, famously did a number of movies. I think he was on Titanic and Apollo 13 and so on. And so this friend of mine, Gary Hutzel, was working for Legato, and eventually... And, and I kind of hinted around, you know. I'm sitting there making these goofy little 16 millimeter educational film saying gosh i always like star trek gosh i always like visual effects and he was kind of one of those people that was like yeah i never even thought about star trek before i got the job eventually when they switched over to deep space so i hung around a bit during uh, next generation so i switched over deep space they said well you know we we basically got a a position available at the, the bottom of the ladder you know do you want to come work for us it's kind of a last in first out kind of hire, so your name won't be on the credits and you know, all these other typical TV conditions. I said, sure, because I just wanted to be close to it. So we were working in the visual effects shop, which was down the street from Paramount. So, you know, Paramount Studios, you go through the big gates and this side of the lot is paid for by Cheers and this side of the lot is paid for by the Star Trek franchise. And there's, you know, all the the people walking around in costumes and the cool sets and the big stages and all that. Well, that's not where we were that's union time we were a non-union group so we were in a little metal shed down the street owned by a guy named tom barron where the, the um, motion control rigs and all that stuff was so i literally my office was a desk underneath a rusted steel staircase and every time somebody went up or down the stairs this little shower of rust flakes would come down on my work and i'd blow it out of the way but it was still really cool because up until about 94 1994 or so they were working with the miniatures, the models. So while I love what's done with good CGI when it doesn't look like a computer game, which some of the Star Trek spinoffs did, just the experience of working with those miniatures was breathtaking. If I may, there was a weekend where we were shooting, I think it was a book cover for Simon & Schuster, which was a Paramount property. And so I was running a little late. So it's August, it's really hot. I drive up to the back of the stage where we're shooting this thing and I jump out of the car and I run in and I open the door. And so I'm going from bright August daylight in Los Angeles, which is like standing on the planet Mercury, to this dark stage. And Gary had already set up. This was a shot of the 1701A Enterprise from the first movie, right? which was a $200,000 model in 1978. Wow! I mean, it was eight feet long and breathtaking. So I, the door smashes open, I walk in, and I see this thing illuminated at the distance against pitch black. He had done this very deliberately as just kind of a, a gift for the, the Star Trek geek in the, in the group, which was me. And I practically burst into tears. It was so beautiful. And that model was so exquisite, no matter how close you got to it, you still can convince yourself this was the real thing. So that was how I got into visual effects. So that was working on deep space. I met... You know, I met most of the actors once, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, you're on the set for 15 minutes to say hi or hand them a, a mock-up of something or show them how to hold a phaser. Because a lot of the extras especially would would go like this, you know, because oh, I think on back. cop shows, they think of the gun.
1: Yeah, kickback.
2: Yeah, one of them, recoil. One of them, I didn't actually see this, but one of them apparently would go bang. He'd actually say, bang, <laughs> and did it. So had to go in and say, no, you have to hold your hand so we can draw the little line out of the thing to whatever you're shooting at. So that was kind of the extent of the interaction. And yet, even now, so I was at a, two conferences in the last couple of years where we had Star Trek Next Generation or later cast members. One was Jonathan Frakes and one was John DeLancey. Both delightful guys, but in both cases, I'm at the conference. And I see them walk into the room during the sponsor's dinner or something. And they're kind of looking around, you know, and I'm sitting back in the corner kind of like this. And I give them the nod and then I walk over like, don't I know you? So they either have the most incredible memory in the planet. They actually <laughs> remember my face from that 15 seconds of exposure, or there's just something about the look, but it's like, do we know each other? And I say, yeah, I worked on D space. They go, oh yeah, I remember you. Uh, you're um uh uh um, You're that um, guy. Yeah. That <laughs> happens
1: to me and Clint all the time. <laughs> to each other, just to be clear.
2: Yeah, right. yeah. Don't, yeah, don't, I, don't, I, you look familiar. Yeah, I looked at, did not we talk last week? Yeah, it was a great experience and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. And the pay was way better than writing books, so that was the probably the best part. Well,
0: yeah, that sounds incredible. And so you worked on other Star Trek franchise components other than deep space?
2: No. uh, I hung out for a few of the TNG episodes, uh, most notably uh, the best of both worlds, which was a lot of fun to watch them shoot. And probably my favorite of of that entire franchise or that entire spinoff. Then I worked on Battlestar Galactica, the reboot for about a year. We were doing pre-visualization. So, you know, Mm. before they got into principal production, they needed to know, okay, how are the ships going to fly? You know are we going to have them bank and turn like fighter planes like every other space movie that had been made up to that point are we going to try and be more realistic and use thrusters and not maybe not have sound in space and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so we were doing that and that was all cgi so that was we built a farm of i think 15 or 20 pieces basically bought with shrink wrap parts from china that were no brand and so forth and you know, you'd render a frame in about seven hours and look at it and go, "Okay, let's render one more frame." So it was kind of excruciating. Then they moved the whole shoot match up to Vancouver. I stayed in LA, so I, I ducked out of the show at that point. My third and last visual effect experience was a absolutely horrid TV pilot directed by Joe Dante. No offense, Joe. Called the Osiris Chronicles, which later became Warlords: Battle for the Galaxy or something. It was kind of a mashup of Star Wars, Dune, Star Trek, Buck Rogers, you name it. So weird. And so Gary and I, Star Trek was on hiatus. So Gary got the job, and I went along with him, Gary Hutzel. We worked on it for about three months. And then he said, hey, i got to go back to Star Trek. And I said, well, I don't. He said, okay, you're the visual effects supervisor now. So I think I was the fifth visual effects supervisor on the show. And... You know, the effects turned out okay, but the show was just unwatchable too unkind. You know, there were some great elements in it, but it was just this long, meandering, I'm the bad guy, you're too good for me, so I'm going to take you down. Why? Because you stole my ink thorium or something. I mean, it went on and on and on, and new alien races. And, of course, one of the central characters was a young girl who flew the Osiris because she's the very best we got, and she's nine or something, but they're trying to appeal to the youth demographic and so on and so forth. The most remarkable thing is the ship, the Osiris, looked just like a dolphin. We just started calling it Flipper because it had this ridiculous... (laughs) It actually had a little dolphin nose, had little dorsal fins, you know, and then these things on the back that would swing up because they were collecting cosmic particles to run the it just got goofier and goofier and this has evolved into baby shark
0: baby shark yeah baby shark there we
2: go (laughs) baby shark was successful however (laughs) this was not so they uh they shot the pilot and i think it ran once and disappeared into the annals of vhs and betamax history but, yeah, it was a fun time. And, you know, the thing was you made such crazy amounts of money in certain situations. There was a, a – on that calendar shoot, was a weekend job, so I think we worked two 10-hour days or something. And, you know, the first eight hours is time and a half because it's the weekend, and then the rest of the hour is up till 10 or triple or something. I mean, it was just, for the time, absolutely insane money and probably – the last time that happened. Cause then I got into writing books and that's insane on the other end of the scale. So <laughs> yeah.
1: But hopefully more relaxing.
2: Oh, you know, it's so much more everything. It's more relaxing for me. Anyway, it was more gratifying. Yeah. It took me a while to figure out that that's what I should be doing. But once I, I got there, it's like, Oh, Oh, I didn't get the memo that I was supposed to be doing this since I was 25 instead of waiting until I'm in my forties, you know?
0: So, what do you have coming out next? Like, what can you tell us about what you got hitting the market next for books, for audiobooks? What should we look for?
2: So, so far, I wrote two audiobooks early on that were um, just destined for audiobook. That was in like 2003, 2004. And then the rest of them were print books that ended up going to audio. So, I haven't since then planned anything specifically for audio. As far as next book goes, It's a really interesting question, because in 2017, I took over as editor of Ad Astra magazine, and suddenly I was getting my writing high off of a different venue, right? That ends up being about a -a 25-hour-a-week job. So suddenly, all those book proposals I had sitting around were beginning to get rather dusty. Part of the reason I went up to Devon Island was because i have been working on an idea about another Mars book, kind of a, a culmination of the... I think I've written three now, three or four. But I wanted to work this analog experience into it because I thought, well, that'll bring immediacy to it. It's a little more personal. I never inject myself in my into my books except little bits and pieces. And I thought, you know, this could be a little bit more personal, which, of course, can often be the death knell of an author, right? It's like, I'm going to try stepping my foot into that pool of water. Ow, 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 that's hot. And, you know, maybe that's your last book. So I think it's going to be about Mars. I also was toying with the idea of a book on planetary evolution, because I think that's really interesting. So those are the two I've been looking at. However, since 2019, the environment's gotten even worse for authors, if that's possible. You know, just to talk about writing in general for a second, I belong to a group called the Authors Guild, which is kind of as close to a union as we've got. They do surveys every three to five years on working conditions, right? So I think in 2009, the average full-time multi-published nonfiction author was making something like thirty-five or $39,000 a year, which, you know, if you're living in the Philippines or maybe some parts of Wisconsin, you can get by. In Southern California, not so much. Last time I checked, I think they did it again in 2018, and it was $9,900 full-time, multi-published book author and non-fiction. So you're doing it for reasons other than the filthy lucre. And I, who am dumb enough to be living in Southern California, which is, you know, one of the more expensive markets in the country, had to have a little come-to-Jesus meeting with myself. So it slows you down a bit. And what's interesting is you're seeing this kind of bull-shaped curve in authors in terms of demographics. So young people up until like late 20s, early 30s are starting to write a lot more because they don't necessarily have mortgages and kids to feed yet and all that. And then older people like me who are maybe retirement age or, you know, they're a tenured professor or something like that who have the ability to like stop working for six months to work on a book can do stuff, but the middle class, if you will, or the middle of that graph is becoming more and more depopulated unless you're an A-lister and actually making a living at it. And it's not a good thing for, for readers. It's sort of self-selecting a big, big chunk of the voices out that we want to hear.
1: That definitely makes it hard to uh, keep it going. That's for sure.
2: Well, it's always been a labor of love. It's just now there's a lot more love than anything,
1: <laughs> than anything else. Yeah, a lot of love and just self-satisfaction.
0: Well, I, for one, am looking forward to reading your your next work. I'm kind of an audiobook fan. Like, Andrew and I both have kids, and the days of actual reading are almost over for us for a while. Oh,
2: you poor guys. Yeah, yeah this is probably a
1: contributing factor to the change in the demographic and in income.
2: So I'm, I'm always yeah. curious for audiobook listeners, do you tend to listen to them when you're driving, jogging, walking?
0: Yeah, I've got drive time every day, and it's a good way to learn something new or relax in a way that you hear a story that you don't have to think you can just absorb. Spend of my time listening to nonfiction audiobooks probably, I don't know, know, maybe five to seven hours a week during drive time. That's a long time. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Andrew? baby shark?
1: Yeah, I mean, it yeah, doing stuff around the house when the kids aren't screaming and yelling, like it's it's just <laughs> I love to have, you know, call it background noise. I like to hear, have noise going around and and listening to a book is just an, a, a nice thing to have going on so you can kind of have it coming in and and pay attention to it and kind of get around get about your day while doing that.
2: So, when you do an audiobook deal And some publishers, they just say, okay, we're doing an audio book. See you later. You know, maybe you'll get a check someday. Other publishers are more cooperative. Ben Bella in particular, who did Space 2.0 and was it Sterling? Anyway, one of the others were in particular really, really cooperative. Oh, it was Tantor. We had made a deal with Tantor. We're actually solicitous of the author's opinion about who should do the read for the book. Which, you know, normally if you're creative, and again, if you're not an A-lister, if you're creative, they're like, uh, yeah, that's nice. You just go sit in the corner and look pretty because that's your best at kind of thing.
0: They can't even tell me to look pretty. so
2: I'm paraphrasing. Like, okay, go sit in the corner and shut up. We'll let you know when the book's out. But these two guys actually were, okay, you know, here's the people we're considering to do the read for the book, and what do you think, and can you work with them a bit? Because if you're a voiceover performer – you don't know what all the acronyms are and how to pronounce certain space terms and so forth. So, those are actually pretty good experiences. But, what the question I'm leading up to is do you guys have particular tastes or thoughts about the kind of thing you like in an audiobook? Because to me, I always am kind of torn between, and this is nonfiction specifically. Between do I want that to be a little more dramatic and put a little more oomph and heart and soul into the reading of it? Or do I want it to be a little more monochromatic so I can fill in the details in terms of how they read it? Or do you not waste time thinking about those things and just enjoy the
1: book? I think probably the the latter. Just enjoy the book.
0: I don't put a lot of thought into that, but some of them are dramatic readings, some of them are more monochromatic. And the thing that I do I like I give an audiobook about 10 minutes, and if I'm not pulled in in about 10 minutes, it's out and I'm on to the next one. Oh, I'm committed.
1: If the topic is interesting to me, I'm going to plow through it no matter what.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite books I don't know if you've heard it, Rod is uh one of my favorite audiobooks. Was my first audiobook, and it was The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon. Like, that's an amazing book. I think it came out on I think it was Amazon audiobooks, might have, I think it was Amazon, could have been Audible.
2: I think Amazon didn't they buy Audible?
0: Yeah, they did, but I can't remember where it came out first, and that's what really got me into to audiobooks. And if you haven't heard that one, if you have Amazon, it it was free at the time, I think. But excellent. Who wrote it? Do you remember? I don't remember, but yeah the the man who knew the way to the moon, and it was about the theory of lunar orbit rendezvous and how we were.
2: John Hubboldt, Yeah.
0: There you go. Okay.
2: About his life. I read another book about him. I don't think it was that one, but, yeah, as, as we came up on the anniversary, he suddenly became a hot topic for the first time in his life.
0: Yeah, I was 19 that I, I listened to that, but it was outstanding, and it would be great um, to start diving into some of your audio books. If I can ever get back to reading where I can really soak it in, then uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. How old are your kids? Ooh, 10 and 14.
2: Well, you're close, you know, the the soccer. and, and... I don't think so and then you get a couple of years, you start getting the nervous first dates and then you can just lock them out at night and read in the evenings when you have uh, all that spare time while you're waiting up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cradling the baseball bat in your hand. (laughs) Yeah. Those years are behind me, but uh, I actually enjoyed them more than I thought I would. I knew I was going to enjoy having a kid, but I didn't know how much, but the late hours waiting up were actually something I didn't mind doing, but I had a son. So that might be a little different.
0: Well, I'm you know, thrilled about the work that you've done. Uh, I've always been a fan of Deep Space Nine, and Andrew and I are all, both big fans of sci-fi. We'll try to stay up till two in the morning to see that one horrendous pilot. Um,
2: yes, definitely. I don't think even then, but okay.
0: But yeah, this has been great. It's been really awesome to learn about your work, Rod. If you have some place that you can steer everyone that listens or both people that listen to our podcast, Where they can go to find your books, feel
2: free. It feels like I always say I have 17 loyal fans. You know, the easiest thing is to get on Amazon. I don't get a kickback or anything. It's just where they live. And the nice thing is, you know, at this point, you can get most of them used for about a quarter of retail Sorry, publishers, I didn't say that. Which is great because you know, you get a book with a, a little black Marx-A-Lot streak on the bottom for two bucks instead of twenty. And it's like I can hang with that. I have a website called pilebooks.com, p y l e books.com. And my podcast is called This Week in Space. And it's with myself and Tarek Malik, who is the editor in chief over at space.com and a heck of a nice guy and runs a tight ship over there. And we're on, you know, Spotify, and Google, and Apple. And like you, I'm sure, all the usual outlets. Yeah, each week we try and get a new and interesting guest, hopefully more interesting than either of us. Kind of do what you're doing here. Hopefully we do it as well. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks, Rod. It's been amazing having you on the show. Thank you. I'm sure he enjoyed it as well.
1: It was awesome, Rod. It was great to meet you. Likewise. Thanks, guys.
0: All right. Thanks, Rod.
1: That was a great episode with Rod. How much fun was that? Yeah, I like that he spent time in the great Canadian North. Mars.
0: who spends time up there?
1: I don't know, but we clearly need a Canadian flag on Mars.
0: You know, one of the things that surprised me was that for a very isolated part of Canada, totally walled off from the rest of the population, they stopped working there because of COVID. Like, I would have thought that would have been the safest place on the planet to be at that time.
1: Good point. But you don't want to, like, pass it on to the polar bears? Yeah. Can
0: they catch COVID?
1: I don't know, but I don't want to find out.
0: Yeah. But, you know, also being on Deep Space Nine, that was awesome.
1: That was pretty cool. Yeah, what a great show. It's one of the ones that has stood the test
0: of time. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I actually never had any idea how challenging it was for an author to make a living. Like,
1: no kidding, right? Like, if you think about it, like, there's just all these books out there, so much cool stuff to read, but for all the authors to crank those out, like,
0: it's tough. Yeah. And, but he's written a lot of books. I'm looking forward to starting to dive in, listen to some of the audiobooks and, I think today, too, one of the coolest things about this interview, this was the first interview we had ever done where someone was on a boat. Like, how did he have that type of great Internet on a boat?
1: Maybe he had Starlink.
0: Maybe. Yep.
1: Maybe. We didn't ask. So. Next episode
0: next episode and we'll get to have him back but that was really great rod Pyle at astro magazine rod we were happy to have you and we'll see all of you and talk to all of you again next time on the next episode of space in 60 60 60 thanks for joining us for another episode of space in 60 Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where New Space speaks.